All right, well, we're going to go over the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. So uh, just for warning, the, uh, I don't have to be to work until 10.30, and if I call my boss, he'll let me come in late, probably, so uh, we'll try to get through this. Uh, Brother Keith asked me to do this, and I'm like, I'm glad I didn't get Hosea. I don't know how you squeeze 14 chapters in, a, in one hour. Um, yeah. But, uh, no, Brother Keith said I could, I could have my choice. He gave, and I, he gave me a couple, and I, this is the one I chose. Um, one, because I didn't, I've never really, I've read the book every year. How many of you read through the Bible every year? That's about as deep into Malachi as I've ever really gotten. It is, it's a pass through on my way to completing my reading for the year. So I was, I just wanted to see what it was like, what it was about, and to dig in and, and uh, see what, what God was really saying in there. So uh, the book of Malachi, Malachi it's, is, uh, it means my messenger or a messenger of Yahweh. We're just going to do a a brief overview of the book, and then we'll get into some specific scriptures that really stood out to me. Um, One of the interesting things about Malachi is when you go through the minor prophets and most characters in the Bible, they're always the son of somebody. But the book of Malachi doesn't open with Malachi the son of, it just says Malachi. Um, If you look at some of the other, uh, Amos, it said Amos, the shepherd, the herder. But Malachi is just Malachi, and we get into it. It, it, There's no stopping. Um, Malachi is traditionally believed to be a part of the great synagogue, a group of scholars that were tasked with the protection of the canon of revealed scripture. So he would, he would have been the one to, in, the, in the synagogue to, to take care of the scriptures that were presented beforehand. Um, the book of Moses, you know, the Pentateuch the, and the, the kings and all of those. That would have been his, he was a part of a group that was, was keeping track of, of the scriptures as they were at that time. A little bit about it, the time frame of the book. I know these are, I'm trying to go through quick because if you're like me, sometimes you don't care, but I, I think it's important to understand where we're sitting in history when we read scripture. And so let's look through the time frame real quick. He's a contemporary of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah came back after, this is post-Babylon. Um, Nehemiah came back and and so, and built the temple. We know this because there was sacrificing, because that's part of the, what he talks about is how they're doing the sacrifices. So uh, some believe that this book takes place in the gap of Nehemiah coming to Jerusalem, building the temple, then going back to Babylon and coming back that he was, hey, the leader's not here. I'm going to, God's sending you a message of, hey, why are we, getting distracted. So that would have been about 432 to 425. And that fits in the idea of, of scripture that says that we know of the 400 years of silence, that it puts this book this book as the last um, word of God to man before 
There was the silence that ended with Zacharias hearing the announcement of John the Baptist. And we'll see that at the end of uh, Malachi. All right, let's see. All right, before we dive into Malachi, here's some things that I want you to, to think about when you're studying the Old Testament. When you look at a book of the Old Testament, a story in the Old Testament, look at, look at these things. There are several ways to approach it. Um, look at a series of questions in, in, in light of Scripture itself. Um, first of all, you have to know the time frame that the book's in and realize that it was set for that, that it was designed to be read and understood in that time frame. And so you need to learn some history around those time frames. I think one of the biggest keys to understanding Joshua through Malachi is to read Deuteronomy chapter 28 often. I'm going to summarize Deuteronomy chapter 28 real quick for you. God takes about 10 verses and says, if you do this, you'll be blessed. God takes the rest of the 60-some verses and says, you do this and I'll curse you. And if you, keep, if you look through the stories and scriptures and, the, and when Israel falls away from God, how many of those blessings and curses or how many of the curses actually come true? And it paints a dire picture. So that is, that's where I always start when I look through the Old Testament is what does Deuteronomy 28 says about the blessing and the curse and how does this fit into God's plan? All right, um, the next thing that you need to do is what is God's plan and what is God revealing about himself and his characters in this book? Okay, then you look for where is Christ in this book? Where is the, the coming of Christ, the person of Christ in the, in, the, in the book? All right, and then the last thing you can do is to apply the scriptures to yourself in light of, but, but like I said, you have to remember that this was written to a certain group of people at a certain time in a certain dispensation. We're going to talk about sacrifices tonight as part of this book. We don't have a sacrificial system that we have to deal with in our church, thank goodness. So with all that said, um, I'm going to end with, with this on the summary of, of the, and I want us to think about Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, and I'm going to read it because we don't have time for me to stop and have, wait for you all to turn there. It says, for the word of God is quick and powerful, the quick meaning live, it's alive, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit, and joint and marrow, and is the discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. Just because we don't live in the time of Malachi, just because we're, uh, just because this talks about the sacrifice, it doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to us. There's something for us to learn. All right, real quickly, if you want to write these down, Malachi 1.1 through 1.5 is the privilege of the nation of Israel. It's the privilege of the nation of Israel. 1.6 through 2.10 is the sin of the priests. 2.11 through 3.15 is the sin of the people. 3.16 to 3.18 is the book of remembrance. 4.1 through 4.3 is the 
coming of Christ, and 4, 4 through 4, 6 is the coming of Elijah. And we'll explain a little bit about that later. All right? If you want me to end this real quick, I can summarize that the book of Malachi is about disbelief, disappointment, and discouragement. And I'll give you the other summary at the end, but I do have time, so we're going to go through some stuff here, okay? But that's the thing. This is the Israel's, this is in view of Israel's disbelief, disappointment, and discouragement. They've come back from Babylon. They've rebuilt the temple. The temple is not what it used to be. There are people that say, remember a time? Remember a time when this thing, remember that big sea on the backs of those oxen, that big brass sea? Remember all the gold on the floors? It was all gone. The Babylonians had taken it all with them. They had just, it was a, it was a shell of itself. Sometimes we become a shell of ourselves. But, there are, but you remember the good times. You remember those things. And, and, and these people have come back. And, and just, I, I'm, I'm going to say all of us, but I'm, uh, when I say that, I mean me. Aren't there times in life where you're going through life and you're just going through the motions? The people start going through the motions. The priests start going through the motions. Um. One of the things about Malachi is written in a question. God asks a question, and then he responds with an answer. But uh, so we're going to start at the beginning with the privilege of the nation. Um, I'm just going to read parts of the scriptures. Uh, verse one, verse two, and verse two says, "I have loved you," saith the Lord. The people were were struggling, and God said, "I loved you." I took care of you. I chose you. There were two. There was Jacob and there was Esau. And I chose Jacob. I chose Israel. I chose you. God's telling them, you're my first choice. You'll always be my choice. And they don't understand because they just came out of captivity. They just weren't the first choice 20 years ago. And they're struggling again. They're not that great nation that they thought they were going to be yet. And so they're struggling along. And God said, no, I chose you. Here's the thing. In those verses, what can, we, what can we see for ourselves? Guess what? God chose you. And God chose me. Most of us know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son when he gave his only son, he chose you and he chose me. The Bible says that he would, that none would perish. God chose us. So no, we're not the chosen nation. We're not, we don't have that, but we are chosen by God. So the next part is the sin of the priest. We're going to slow down here and, and dig in a little bit deeper. Um, look at Malachi 1.8. I'm going to read, and it says, And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, 
or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts. The sacrificial lamb, God's picture of a future lamb that was coming. If you go back to uh, Deuteronomy and you go back, God says, this is what I need from you. This, this is the system that I have put in place. This is how you will sacrifice. The lamb will be perfect, unblemished, the firstborn. Do all these things sound familiar? It's a description. It's a picture of Christ. And, and as he sets up this picture of the, the, the sacrificial lamb, that's a picture of Christ and his sacrifice that's coming. He's, the problem is that they're bringing their, their broken down animals, the lame, the blind, the sick animal. And God says, you're messing my picture up. You want to know what happens when you mess up God's picture? Look at Saul. The Bible says there is only one priest, prophet, and king. God chose Saul as king. As a sign of him becoming king, God said, said you will prophesy. And Saul, on his, or on his way back, after looking for his father's donkey, he prophesied in the name of God. He danced before the Lord. He had filled two of the positions of the one true coming king of Israel. And then when it's time to go to war, and there was the job of the priest to sacrifice the animal, and he took it upon himself, he messed up God's picture. And at that moment was when God cut him off. So here these people are, hundreds of years later, messing up God's picture of the sacrifice, messing up God's purpose, messing up God's plan of what a sacrifice should be. And God takes that serious. You don't mess with God's plan. He's bigger than us. So the people are like, well, if I just keep this for myself over here, if I just, I, I got this one good lamb, I'm going to keep him and we'll have better lambs next year. Just think, they didn't fall far from the deceiver of their forefather, Jacob, who did this to his father-in-law. But God is saying, hey, I want what I deserve. I love you, and I want what I deserve. Would you do that to, would you give the Persians that sick animal? And would that governor accept it? And God said, uh, I'm sorry. Um, in Malachi 1.14, and I'm going to, let's read this real quick. I'm trying to do this with technology, but I struggle. Look at the, the end of uh, Malachi chapter, or well, let's just read, it says, be cursed, but cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male and voweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am the great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. I'm the great king. You think the king of Babylon was great? I named Nebuchadnezzar, who, yes, was before the Persians, but I named Nebuchadnezzar as the great king. But I also humbled him when he raised himself up to be and with pride and put himself in my position. 
And God say, I'm going to do the same to you. If you can't sacrifice to me what I deserve, then I have to punish you. All right? But how does all this apply to us? We don't have a sacrificial system. All right, I'm getting old. My eyes are hurting. I got to use these things called glasses. I never did. I honestly thought those were my sunglasses on my head. I was embarrassed that I walked up here with them. So, all right. It stinks getting old. So how does this apply, this sacrificial system to us? Okay, God's calling out the priests at this time. They're offering these sacrifices. Here's, here's something for you to write down. Write down 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And here it is. Why is God calling the priests out? And how does that apply to us? 2 Peter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into a marvelous light. We are a royal priesthood called by God to serve him. He is the great high priest. We are the servant priests. We too have our sacrifices to offer. The sacrifice, sacrificial system is over. It was over when Christ died on the cross. But, here's, but think about this. What does Romans 12:1 say? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The sacrifice no longer has to die. Christ died for us. Now we live for him. Um, our sacrifices, ourselves, all of us, our mind, our body, our soul, and our spirit. Sometimes it's easy for us to look at the spiritual, think about the mental, try to control our thoughts because God says that we're accountable for even our thoughts. A lot of us, well, okay, I'm throwing you all under the bus, and maybe me, it's also our body. What are we sacrificing in our body? I wasn't here to talk about Guatemala. I wasn't, and we, I actually was celebrating my 50th birthday. But, so I'm going to take a minute to talk about Guatemala because it applies here. Our bodies. What are we doing with our bodies for Christ? We were in Guatemala, and I... It was probably one of the best times of my life. We played with the kids. We played soccer. We were up in the mountains. It was cool. We played soccer. We, we pl went and we played with the kids at another church and at the orphanage. And we, it was just giving of ourselves. And the hardest moment for me was we went out to the beach. And uh, I love the beach. I always love, love the beach. I love North Carolina. That's where my kids were raised, um, or born, I should say, not raised. Most of them were raised here, but um, I just loved the beach, and it was hot. I mean, just hot. And uh, the sand was black, and so it, it made it even more intense, more hot. And, and my body quit on me. I literally walked back into the church, what was a church. It was an open-air thatched rooftop 
and I sat down and my body had failed me. I couldn't play with the kids. I was nauseous. I had eaten. It wasn't about being a lack of food. It wasn't lack of water. I'd, I'd had plenty of water. I just was too heavy to do the job. And it just hit me that when God says he wants all of us, when God wanted everything from the people, when God wanted everything from the priest, he wanted it all. And that's why it says, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy body. It is to be part of the whole thing. I came back from Guatemala and I said, that's not happening next year. I've only lost five pounds from since then, but I'm really working at it. I'm going back to Guatemala. I'm going back out to that beach and I'm going to play with those kids. I don't care what it takes unless God takes me away and puts me down. That's my goal is to be able to go out there and play with those kids on that beach and not be affected by the heat because I prepared my body to be a living sacrifice for God. In verse, we, we, t- we talked about, you know, God saying, would you give such to your, the, uh, in verse 8 it says, would you give such to the governor? Would you offer that to your governor? And uh, the answer is no, we wouldn't. Let's move on to the sin of the people. This is uh, Malachi 2.10 through 3.15. And uh, we're going we're gonna to sit down in uh, Malachi 2.17. The sins of the people, to sum it up, there was idolatry, divorce, intermarriage with other nations. You're like, well, but we have that today. That's not, there's a difference. At this time, they were still under the Leviticus covenant, and they were required to stay Jews, to marry Jews, and to remain Jews. They weren't supposed to mix in. God wanted to keep them safe because if, you, if, if you're a Jew and you practice Jew, Judaism and you follow God and his plan, then you don't worship idols. I don't know about you, but if my wife wants me to do something, I usually end up doing it because I want her to be happy. And this is what God was trying to protect them from, is don't marry outside of Judaism and be tempted by idols. I just crushed you as a nation and sent you into captivity for 70 years because you messed up. Here we are 15, 20 years later, after they've come back after this 70-year expulsion, and they're already starting to fall apart away again. And so Malachi 2.17 says, Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? It's going to hurt if you think about it. When ye say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? Doesn't that sound like today? Doesn't that sound like our nation today? Our churches today? That are calling evil good? Or allowing things that God said no? They were saying it's okay 
okay to get divorced. It's okay to, to follow these idols. It's okay. And God said, no, it's not. Stop. And then Malachi 3.8 says, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. When ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? And God says, In tithes and offerings. 10%. That's all God asked for. 10%. Here's a crazy thing. I've really started in the last six months to really dig into learning again. And I've been reading some books on financing and planning and all of those things. Non-Christian authors, people that don't believe in God. In your financial planning, you should give 10% to charity. If these people can figure it out, why can't we? Why don't we give our 10%? You could argue that the 10% goes to your church and the offering goes out other places. And maybe that's true. But are we giving our 10% to God? At least our 10%. Um, Luke 6, 8. Here's what happens if we give to God. Give, and it shall be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. A couple of the authors that I've read are multi-multi-millionaires, and they have said every time they give to charity, they just fall upon something that blesses them even more. The principles of the Bible are true if you believe in God or not, but the blessings of God are poured upon his people. And if, if the principles of God are blessing non-believers, what's it going to do for us as believers? Don't give just because you think you're going to get it pressed down, shaken together. Guess what? It might not be until you get to the other side that you're going to see all of the blessings that God poured upon your life. But we have to, we have to give just the minimum 10%. The rest is between you and God. But he said tithes and offerings. Our offerings are found in Romans 12.1. Remember, which is your reasonable service? Be a living sacrifice. Offer yourselves unto God. That's what he wants. He wants us to give of ourselves to, to offer hope to a lost world. So the people repent. A group of the people repent. This is found in uh, 3, 16 through 18. And one of, the, uh, one of the Bibles that I read calls this the book of remembrance. And uh, this is for the people that repented as a promise to God, and they wrote it down. In a, this book of remembrance of what they wanted, they wrote down who is God, what will we do our, to show our love for him? The key is, though, that we need to not only talk about it, we need to do it. More and more in life, I have found that Nike has the best slogan for life. Just do it. God said it, just do it. It doesn't always have to make sense. You don't have to have an understanding of why you have to do something all the time. One, God said it, do it. 
But sometimes we don't see the big picture. God sees everything. We only see this much. When I was in the Marine Corps, and I've probably used this illustration before, one of the things we had to do everywhere we went was we would sit on the floor and we would say what a lot of people call Indian style now. I don't remember what we call it now, the more politically correct term. But you all know what I mean. I'm not too old to do this. I haven't done it for a long time. But you sit down, cross your legs. We did it everywhere we went. If we got to sit down, that's how we sat. When we went to our history class, we sat down. And, and we had to cross our legs. And if you didn't, someone was yelling at you. It didn't make, it didn't make sense to us. For 11 weeks, we sat down in Indian style. It didn't make sense. Then we went out to the rifle range. At 200 yards, you stand up, drop to the ground Indian style, and you fire 10 shots at the target. Guess what? After 10 weeks of stand, sitting Indian style, you're a rock, solid as a rock. There's no pain to sit there for 10 shots. There's no movement in your body, and you fire your shots clear, true to the mark. I shot 10 for 10 in less than a minute, because that's all you get is one minute to fire 10 shots. But for 10 weeks, it didn't make sense. It's the same with God. He's written all of history. He knows where it fits in history. It'll make sense. We just got to do it. And I know I ignore him too many times. And I'm guilty of not just doing it. But that's what he wants. And that's what this book of remembrance was. We remember who you are, God. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You are our authority. And we will honor you. The idea of this was it was, a, it was a time of meditation. And because I have a few moments, I'm going to talk about meditation. Okay? To meditate on God simply means to think about God and his attributes. Look, even the secular world recommends meditation. Now they've messed up meditation. Because they say, empty your mind. Let it all out. Clear your head, be empty, be void. It's not what God says. Meditate on me. Pick a scripture, pick an attribute of God and spend time just meditating on it. Look, it's hard to meditate. Start with five minutes. Health experts say 20 minutes a day of meditation will do wonders for your body. But that's too hard. I can't sit for 20 minutes and not fall asleep. I can't sit for 20 minutes and not think of a million things. I can't even, sometimes I can't do it for five minutes. I mean, you, you look at an attribute of a God. God is love. Okay? And you sit down and you're like, God is love. John 3.16 says that God loved the whole world. John 3.16 says God loved the whole world. You know, I need to mow the lawn before it gets too hot. God is love. And they that, that knoweth not, or though, I am going to mess it up. First uh, John uh, chapter 4, 7, and 8 says that God is love. 
And that's what we need to meditate on that, that God is love and, and know that God loves us. I got to go to work in an hour. Oh, I forgot to pay the water bill. That's how my meditation goes. We have to just keep trying. And eventually we'll get it. And it'll be some of the sweetest time with God that you can have. God will reveal himself to you. Not all at once, because we can't handle it. But enough. He will reward our efforts. He will reward us for trying. Read the scripture over and over. Here's the thing, God is holy. Just read Isaiah chapter 6 over and over and think about the holiness of God. Look at the descriptions in Revelation and Isaiah and, and the pictures of heaven and how even the angels were given wings to cover themselves so they would not present their faces to an almighty holy God. And yet we sit here with the opportunity to serve him and we fail him every single day. Do we really understand his holiness? I don't understand it. None of us will this side of heaven understand it. But it is so good and so pure that even the perfect created angels that were created by God never have sinned bow down in worship and feel unclean before an almighty God. And they have never, ever done anything that you and I have done. They've never lied. They've never withheld something. They're perfectly created beings of God, and yet they stand before a holy God in reverence and fear. Who are we? Meditate on that. Think about it. Think about things like God is not mocked. Just, just find a moment. Take some, a quiet time and let it sink in. Start with five minutes. You know what I started to do was I would get distracted in my meditation. I would have a piece of paper and I'd be like, God is holy. God is holy. And, and I, one time I just start right now. God is holy. God is holy. God is holy. And I looked down at the list after five minutes and it was, God is holy, God is holy, God is holy, take out the trash. God is holy, God is holy, God is holy. And I had two columns. But I, I couldn't concentrate, and so I just started writing. It, 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 it's simple. It, you don't have to write some journal entry or anything, but just concentrate on who God is. And that's what this book of remembrance was supposed to do. Remember who God is. We promise that we know who you are. We promise that we're going to follow you, that we're going to do the things that you want us to do. All right, let's get to the last part here. I said one of the things that we have to do is, what's God's plan in every Old Testament book, and where is Christ? So this is going to go back and forth into the, the book of Malachi. We're going to start in Malachi 3.1. It speaks about John the Baptist going out before Christ. It says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So, um, sorry. 
It says, this is talking about John the Baptist. Look at it. Don't look at it. But in Luke 1, it says, and he shall go before him in the spirit of Elias. Elias is Elijah. That John the Baptist was sent out before Christ. He was the one to go. After, after you get, he prepares the way before me, the rest of the verse talks of Christ's coming. Because it says, And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come. And who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Christ came that we might have life. And this is, so this is the one part of what we see the coming of Christ. Malachi chapter 4, verses, verse 1 is our future judgment. It says, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire. Second Peter 3, 7, But the same word that presents heaven and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of destruction, judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Malachi is talking about way out in our future, not just the future of Israel, but to us, it is still future tense that he's talking about. And then Malachi 4.5 talks about the time that Elijah will come again. So we can debate on this. It could just be the idea of John the Baptist coming in Luke 1, 7, or Mark 9, 11 through 13, that he was the one to prepare the way for the Lord. But I, I think that it's also talking about a future coming of Elijah. I would argue Revelation chapter 11, but I don't want to get anybody upset when we come to the two witnesses. My argument is that there are two witnesses that come and they are killed before the Lord. And the Bible says, all must perish. It's pouring on a man wants to die, and after that, the judgment. Only two people in Scripture that have never faced death. Elijah and Enoch. And God said, they're coming for, or he says, Elijah's coming back. And I believe him. That's just, that's my feelings on that Scripture. But I, I think that it points to the truth that Elijah's coming back. If not that if it's not Elijah, at least it's the spirit of Elijah. Someone with the spirit of Elijah. Elijah was a rough guy. You look at the Old Testament, a lot of these guys are rough characters. You don't have to be smooth. All of David's men were rough. They were warriors. They were dirty. But their hearts were clean before their Lord. It's about what's on the inside. Not all of us can be polished. Some of us are going to say things we shouldn't say in, in ways that sound wrong. We're going to use bad words. We're talk, going to say that God's funner instead of that God is more fun. God doesn't care about that. It's the inside. It's the heart. Here's what Malachi's got to, here's, here's my conclusion for this. We're going to get out a little early because I thought I was only getting 20 minutes. So I'm going to sum up Malachi for you. 
All right? You ready? If you're going to write this down, it's real hard to follow this. One, God loves you. God said to his people, I love you. I chose you. Number one, God loves you. Two, God demands obedience and he will bless you. Be obedient, not expecting the blessing. It'll change how you live your life. If you do something and expect a blessing, you're going to miss it. You've already received your reward. Just do it. And maybe you don't see it today or tomorrow. But God will bless you. I remember when we came to start a church, God just showed up at the last minute. for what I would have said the last minute. I paid for... um, I paid for my trash pickup for months. You know, every month the bill came, I paid $75 or whatever it was. And 10 months later, I needed an amount of money. And I looked at my wife and I said, I don't know how we're going to do this. (laughs) We're struggling, Lord. What are we going to do? Got a check from the city of Cincinnati. said, we're sorry, uh, or or we got a check from Rumpke. It said, sorry, we didn't realize, but you actually live in Cincinnati proper, not Delhi, so your trash pickup is free. Here's your refund. Guess what? I took my wife out with the little bit of extra money we had after I paid the bill. <laughs> God blessed us. You're like, well, it was your money anyway. No, God blessed me. I wouldn't have saved that money. God took care of me in spite of myself. And that's the thing about God. He takes care of us in spite of ourselves. He just wants obedience. Car broke down and church, a church showed up for a mission trip. And they're like, we don't know why, but uh, one of the guys is a car dealer. Here's a car for you. <laughs> I don't know why. I do. When I look back at it. We needed a car. God said, hey, they need a car. Hey, you have a car dealership and you're blessed. Bless them and I will bless you. It wasn't, don't, but don't do something expecting God to bless you. Just do it and God will bless you when you least expect it. So God loves you. God demands obedience and he'll bless you. And here's the scary one. He is coming in judgment, and we need to be ready. And for me, the scariest part of this is that I'm not ready. Yes, I'm ready to go to heaven because God died for me. Yes, I only believe that the only reason I'm getting in the gates of heaven as the saying goes, by the skin of my teeth, is because of who he is, not because of who I am. And what he did for me. I'm not ready to face God because I haven't done enough. I haven't reached back and gotten burned to pull other people out of the gates of hell. 
I have not told everybody that I know that there is a Savior out there. There are people I look back in my life and I'm, you have regrets. Friends that, well, I, I kind of told them, but I didn't push it. And they're gone in an instant in a car accident. My best, one of my best friends in high school was drafted by the Cincinnati Reds out of high school. Got in a car, he was in minor league baseball. Got in a car with another guy trying to be a good friend that his parents had died in a, in a, in a car accident. And they were driving back from the funeral. And the kid fell asleep at the wheel. And my friend who was all everything in baseball in the state, already drafted by the Reds, died in a car accident. Never lived to his full potential. I never pushed him on the, you know, I kind of told him, but I, there's a difference between kind of telling and, and, and telling. I kind of told. He knew that I was a Christian, but I didn't tell him. And I do that every day sometimes. I, I, I look at people and there are people, I don't want them to go to hell, but I don't like them <laughs> as a person. But that's not for me to decide. God loved the whole world. So Malachi says what? God loves you. God demands obedience and he'll bless you. But he is coming back in judgment. One of my, I used to be, one of my favorite passages of Scripture is the coming of Christ in, in Revelation 19. In that picture of us all descending upon earth behind him. And I, I, I used to love that Scripture. I, just, I could just picture it. And I remember a, a, one of the times I was, I was reading the Scripture and, and I was, we were out to sea. And uh, if you've ever seen the movie Black Hawk Down, um, I went to Somalia right after that happened. And you want to talk about the greatest army and military power in the world right now? We descended upon a nation that we couldn't even fly. We had to turn the jets around before we even got to the shore so that we didn't cross into the wrong airspace. But one morning I got up, the sun is, is, is over, over the, the country of, of Somalia. It's rising up from the east. We had to turn into it. So we were taking off away from Somalia and then turning around and going back in. And I'm standing there, and, and the boat's rising as all the aircraft start to leave. And there's an aircraft carrier over here, an aircraft carrier over here, and the helicopters are taking off right in front of me. You see this beautiful sunrise. You think about God standing there, holding the sun in place. We're going to get revenge. And it hit me right between the eyes, and God said, but today is some of those people's last day to know who I am. And my whole view on Revelation chapter 19 is, it's coming anyway. Go get the people. 
And even knowing that, I fail God. So God loves you. He wants to bless you. But he is coming in judgment. Thank you.